Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Professor Allison James, who is the author of Engaging Imagination, Helping Students Become Creative and Reflective Thinkers. Welcome to the show, Allison. Thank you so much for inviting me, Christina. I am so glad we're here and we get to talk about the important role of play and imagination and creativity for higher ed. But before we dive into all of that, Will you please tell us about yourself? Yes, absolutely. So um, I, I, if you like, I, I started life as a very traditional kind of learner myself. You know, I went to a grammar school in, in the United Kingdom. Um, I got traditional academic qualifications. I was a very kind of read-write uh, reading fan. Um, I did my first degree in modern foreign languages and um, after that, for all sorts of reasons, I thought, that's it, I'm done with academia. I want to do uh, something that isn't that. And I did various things. I worked as a translator and I um, worked in a natural medicine clinic and I trained as a reflexologist and I did all sorts of things. And periodically, a girlfriend would say to me, just just why don't you give teaching a go? Uh, because I kept you know, trying different sort of forms of, of work and thinking, mm, no, that's not really it either. And uh, I, I kept resisting. And then in the end, um, she convinced me. And the moment I walked into a classroom on that, that first sort of outing of just being hired to do one to two hours a week, gosh, that seems like a long time ago, I realized that actually teaching was absolutely it. Education was what I was you know, born to do, if you like, and or born to be in. And and so that was a wonderful reawakening, if you like, after sort of pushing it away for a few days, years. Um, so I worked um, uh, with modern foreign languages in specialist arts institutions, creating and running language uh, learning programs to go with creative arts degrees. And then bit by bit, I found myself much more fascinated by what brings people to learning, what turns their learning on, what turns their learning off. And above all, it was working in creative arts institutions that really enabled me to take stock 
of what I thought were good teaching and learning practices and see actually what other people needed. And I'd been lucky in that the traditional way of learning, you know, rote learning, memorizing stuff, doing exams, writing essays, I found all of that quite easy. Reading, taking notes, no bother. Um, And working with uh, creative arts practitioners and students made me realize that there was a whole other world to learning. And also, I experienced that as a reawakening because when I was in my traditional secondary school formal education, um, creativity was very much stamped out of us, I felt, you know, art, drama, music, um, um, alas, still to this day, possibly even more so, were just not appreciated in formal education as being proper intellectual academic pursuits. You know, they were the sorts of things you did if you couldn't get on with history, geography, English literature, math, science, rather. And I realised that I, my, I'd lost my own creativity and I found myself looking wistfully at these students and my colleagues who just had this wealth of ways of imagining and describing and drawing and visualising um, the world around us, whether it be clothes or design or architecture or, uh, you know, ceramics or glass blowing or whatever it was. And I also realized that these students had these incredible strengths and talents, but actually expecting them to sit down, write an essay, read a book at length, memorize it all, do traditional exams was never going to pay tribute to what they could do. It was never going to express what they could do. And it was actually not a very good way of teaching them what they needed to know or assessing whether they knew it. And so that took me on a real, real journey, if you like. And I moved further into uh, teaching and learning. So I worked in um, one specialist arts institution for a number of years. And then I moved um, to work for the London College of Fashion. And while I was doing uh, those kinds of jobs, I was also building very quite an extensive external network um, of uh, working with and finding out about creative and imaginative approaches to teaching and learning in other uh, universities, in other disciplines, in other countries. And through that, I extended my own repertoire to um, writing the book, Engaging Imagination, with um, the absolutely phenomenal Professor Stephen Brookfield, who is globally known uh, as an educator and has written numerous books which are a must read I think for anybody who cares passionately about good teaching and learning justice fairness equality uh, critical thinking Um, he's an absolute genius and so I had a real a real treat in being able to work with Stephen and on this book we brought together his passion and experience and love and knowledge about critical thinking and critical reflection and my own kind of uh, more pragmatic approaches to bringing creativity and imagination and playfulness into teaching and learning activities. So we put our heads together and we did that book. And that book was really at a time when I was very immersed in something that we called in the UK personal development planning. And it was very big for a number of years. And that was really looking at the kind of meta skills, the soft skills, the adjunct skills that enabled students to express who they are, what they're capable of, where they're going, where they've been, how how they've developed, if you like, alongside and hand in hand with their academic discipline. 
And so at the time when we wrote that book, students were getting a bit fed up of having to write critical reflections on, you know, what they'd learned, what went well, what went badly, especially if they were kind of, you know, write a 500 word statement about what you got out of this assignment. You know, most of them found that dreadfully boring. They, they freely admitted that they were completely disingenuous about how they wrote it. Um, they'd write any old stuff that they thought would tick the boxes for their teachers. And I, because I really believed that personal development planning, this ability to critically reflect on your own learning and development is actually so fundamental. And it's part of our self-concept and our self-identity. It's not just this kind of academic trickery that you perform to keep your, your tutors happy. I thought there must be ways that we can bring this alive, bring this alive for students in ways that make them want to engage with it, find it meaningful, learn something about themselves, have useful tools that take them forward. And that really was why we wrote that book and so we tried to make it in the spirit of the Jossie Bass publications as practically useful as possible yes there was theory yes there was uh, critique of you know academic discourse and, and debates and approaches to pedagogy and all the rest of it but at the end of the day we wanted to provide a lot of examples of who was doing what imaginatively to bring that notion of critical self-reflection alive. And so that's what that book was all about. And that was a real, number one, it was utter bliss to work with Stephen because not only is he a scholar, he's a gentleman and he was a wonderful person to learn from. Um, so fantastic experience. And the book was then uh well received and has been really useful on a lot of teacher training programs which is great incidentally this is not me plugging the book I it's you know I had a love affair in writing the book I, I, I it means a great deal to me but but you know I'm not here to to flog textbooks to anybody um but so that was that was that and and the more while I was writing that book with Stephen I got very interested in use of all sorts of creative approaches for my own teaching because alongside this I wasn't I was working as a, as a manager and as an advisor and a supporter of learning across disciplines but I was also doing huge amounts of teaching myself and I wanted to, to teach as creatively and as imaginatively as I could so I went on exploring these different approaches. I created some courses, including some Lego-based courses for personal development planning and for other things as well. And all of that work led to me um, being awarded a National Teaching Fellowship in 2014 in the UK. And about a year before then, I also trained as a Lego serious play facilitator. So someone who uh, got trained in this methodology called Lego Serious Play, which is about using uh, a systemic selection of building and discussion and sharing techniques to really explore uh, deep, difficult, complex issues which we all which we all res wrestle with, whether it's about making your your university sustainable or how it is that you can motivate learning and how can you be more inclusive or, you know, lit literally any, any kind of complex problem. So my own practice had been developing a great deal all this time. And uh, because of Lego Serious Play, I started looking much more into playful approaches to learning. I then met um, Dr. Christina Rancy, um, who's now a, a, a 
I think her title is Associate Professor um, at Leeds University. And Chrissy too was working with Lego and we put heads together and we had a shared love of, of playful approaches. And so we put, we first of all, we created um, with Professor Norman Jackson, a, a creativity expert in the UK. Um, we created something called, um, uh, well, his Norman's project was called The Creative Academic, and it's freely available online if you Google Creative Academic. And uh, he was bringing out um, a very um, non-academic academic journal, that is to say something that really bucked the trends of all your typical academic papers in that it was very visual, it was magazine-led, but it was still highly theorised and it was about practice. So we thought we would write um, an issue called Exploring Play in Higher Education. And back in 2015, we thought, well, nobody seems to be doing anything that's playful. Nobody seems to be interested in play in higher education. Um, let's have a dig around, see if we can get anybody to, um, to, to contribute something to this issue. And if we can't, then, you know, each of us will write something and we'll find a couple of other things and we'll have five or six pieces and, and you know, and that will be a good outcome. So we put out this call internationally through our networks and we ended up getting 37 contributions um, internationally of the ways that people were using play. And we had to create two issues, not one of this magazine. Issues 2A and 2B. It sounds like train platforms. but uh, And again, you know, they're freely available to download uh, on the internet. And that was really the start of something. So for Chrissy and I, we were thinking, well, you know, when, when we started thinking about writing or, or producing these, these journal articles with Norman, we thought nobody was doing this. But clearly people are doing this. So if we're starting to find more people who are doing this, there must be even more people who are doing this. And they're keeping quiet. Why is that? And um, each in our own way, we, we went off to explore this. And I was fascinated by... by by what we could potentially discover. So Chrissy and I uh, joined forces again, and we we um, brought together this time sixty four contributors, uh, or sixty four I can't sixty four contributors, forty two examples, or the other way around. I can't remember. Awful lot of examples um, in a book called um, "The Power of Play in Higher Education: Creativity and Tertiary Learning," which Palgrave Macmillan brought out in twenty nineteen. And again, you know, we looked at this book and we thought. We're finding even more people who are using play in higher education. But what we were also starting to get a sense of was where there is resistance to play in higher education. And I'll talk about that in, in, a, in a little while, I feel sure. Um, and it was interesting also having, having the experience of working with uh, a European-based publisher and an American-based publisher, both for the uh, for engaging imagination and for the power of play was each time our publishers were the publishers we approached first of all were very nervous about putting the word play in the title of an academic book um certainly when we yeah well i think it's it, it's because um it just sounded uh, unprofessional. It didn't sound serious. It didn't sound academic. It didn't sound like people working with adults. It almost sounded like, you know, anybody who was sticking play in a title was either taking liberties with the quality and standards of higher education, or or they were kind of 
assuming that it had to be edutainment. Now, I don't know if this is a word that travels, but certainly in 2015, edutainment was a term in the UK that was very derogatory. And it was really about, you know, you can't do proper, serious, difficult learning. You just have to make it all happy, clappy and, um, you know, for, for students who really can't cope. And to me, that was an absolute travesty of misunderstanding in terms of, um of what play could actually bring so that was that revealed two things that whole experience revealed to us number one resistance to play number two suspicion about what play means in higher education number three actually people were playing in higher education but they weren't letting on about it because they were afraid there would be some kind of backlash they wouldn't be seen as credible academics um, they wouldn't get tenure, they wouldn't get promotion, they'd be sidelined, um, whatever, whatever. So a lot of things started to emerge from that. And on the strength of that book, which as of January 2022, and this is a year ago now, um, had been downloaded worldwide 36,000 times, um, uh, and that's that's uh, not including um, hardback sales. We, I, I just thought there is so much more here. I want to continue this journey. I want to find out more about who's playing. Are people in other countries finding the same kinds of supports? You know, the reasons for playing, uh, which were people were fed up. They were feeling they were in an academic straitjacket. Their students were getting disengaged. The teachers were bored. They were there were a thousand reasons why they felt they wanted to turn to a different way of teaching and learning. And yes, it was interesting finding uh, through the work that I then conducted um, the kinds of supports they were finding and the kinds of resistances they were encountering. So in 2019, I was um, awarded funding from the Imagination Lab Foundation based in Switzerland, but it's got an international board. And that's a not-for-profit charitable organisation which seeks to uh, carry out theoretical research, looking at the teaching, particularly for them, it's about the teaching of management theories and concepts and the intersection between management education and the arts, imagination, play and so on and so forth. And you can find um, uh, more about the foundation on imagilab.org. and for me, you know, I'm interested in any discipline at all. And so they 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 funded me. Uh, they I don't I didn't benefit financially from the arrangement, but they gave me money to conduct research to look at the use and value of play in higher education. They gave me free reign to explore all the disciplines I wanted to explore. But but for them, I also had uh, a dedicated focus on play and management management education in universities. And what I was particularly interested in trying to elicit was looking at what did people think the value of play was? And while I did all of that, I also did a substantive piece of work looking at play literature, looking at the emerging literature of play in higher education, looking at the kinds of theoretical work um, around uh, play full stop, Um, I particularly was interested in the work of uh, Brian Sutton Smith, who wrote The Ambiguity of Play in 1997, seminal text. And so that that study broke the world wide open for me. Um, I published it in September. Again, it's open source. It's freely downloadable from my website. And um, that, to me, 
revealed, well, hopefully what the study has revealed, and I can talk about it in a bit more detail, it, it again, produced evidence that people are using play in higher education in more than 20 countries, and it will be more than 20 countries. It just so happened that I spoke to people in 20 countries. Um, the extent to which they're playing obviously varies according to all sorts of things, including educational culture, bent, involvement of, you know, does, does the government set the assessment systems or, or whatever? And um, so all of that work sort of led me to where I am now. So for three years, having become a professor of teaching and learning in the UK in 2017, um, I've been working as, a, as an independent academic since 2019, concentrating predominantly on doing the research, but also working with Lego Serious Play, also uh, working with um, uh, professional educators and uh, non-educators, providing coaching and working with universities who are seeking to make their offer more creative, more playful, more imaginative. So that's a terribly long way of telling you my CV, really. And along the way, I've, I've published a lot of papers, journal articles, book chapters, and just latterly, I've, I've had the joy of contributing to other people's you know, work on on uh, play as well. The Professors at Play playbook that's just come out, which is freely downloadable from their website, and also uh, more specialist works like that of uh, Colonel uh, Jason Togatrue, who brought out a book called The Icarus Solution, which looks at uh, the concept of air mindedness um, in the in in Air Force education. But it also he also looks at, among other things, the presence of playfulness. Um, as well. So, so yes, I, I went from being uh, a linguist many years ago to somebody who's really been immersed in creative and playful pedagogy um, for many years since. That was a wonderful introduction to the field as well as to yourself, what, what play in higher education uh, means right now to so many scholars and I'm getting a strong sense of resistance and pushback against it, which is, um, I suppose, unsurprising, but also disappointing. Um, before we go too much further, we do want to introduce your cat who may wake up and join us. Can you tell us about your cat? I can. And, and apologies in advance. He has a very annoying meow. Um, he is currently, his name is William. He's a huge ginger tom. He's 19 and a bit. Um, he's very deaf, which I think is why he meows so loudly. But he he's very fond of me and probably fonder of me than the rest of my family. And so as long as he's asleep in a basket near me, he's quite happy. Um, so most of the time I take the risk. But if there is suddenly a sort of yowling like it comes out of a Hammer horror movie, everything is fine this end. It just means that William's woken up and he's seeking some attention. So apologies in advance. You'll know about it if he does wake up anyway. Well, we're happy to have William here. Um, we've had um, many family members, human and furry, join in on podcasts, either usually in this situation where they were napping when we started <laughs> and they woke up and they're always welcome to be here. That's lovely. Um, I have so, so many questions from your introduction. I'll just um, dive in. One of the things you, you talked about is people have a lot of assumptions about what mm. the value of play yeah. is. And I'm guessing in your book proposals, in your grant proposals, there were hurdles you maybe had to jump where people 
maybe assumed you were talking about these projects would be for very young children or that you would have to work hard to bring in metrics about why this would bring value to higher ed. How do all these assumptions um, impact you getting out the message about the value of play? Um, I think I think it, they, they probably they probably impact invisibly in that if somebody is sufficiently and I don't want to be bald about it, but I'm going to use this word close minded that they and let's face it, we all do it, don't we, Christina? You know, we, we might we might look at something that we don't know much about and think, oh, I don't think that's for me. Oh, I wouldn't like that. And so we're fairly sure that we won't like that. And so we don't pursue it. We don't have anything to do it. If we're invited to join in it, we say, no, thank you. Um, and I think I think that I think the, the 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 first stumbling block you have with play is you say the word play and instantly people think they know what it is. And, um, you know, they have their, their own interpretations. If, if I say play to you, what, what instantly jumps into your head without any sort of academic theorizing or Googling? What's the first thing you think of? For me, it's my dad. He really believed that we had to make time to have play in our life. And he worked such long hours that the bits of time that I got with him, he he tried to make sure we were doing something that was outdoors or was imaginative or we got out the board game. So when you said that, the first thing was like an image of my dad popped into my head. That's lovely. That's absolutely lovely. And of course, what you've hit on there, and that's going to be a tangent that perhaps we can come back to, is that actually play is a fundamental human behavior. You know, it is part of of, of how we survive and thrive. And if I can quickly digress before I come back to your, you know, what, what is play and what, what derails people is if you think back to uh, the lockdowns in the pandemic, you know, play was one of the things that got people through whatever, whatever that kind of play was. And I know that <clears throat> when I started doing talks about play, um, uh, online um, while I was doing my research very quickly people I was attending and speaking at a lot of events where people were talking about survival you know how do we survive this emotionally and mentally how do we survive this never mind getting sick or or whatever and it was fascinating because I invited people very early on to say well what signs of play have you noticed around and about and I shared some of the ones that I'd seen, you know, people wearing blow up dinosaur suits to go to um, the supermarket. You know, some of them, it was to, to raise a smile and raise morale in their fellow shoppers. Others genuinely believed it was a form of physical protection. It might have been. I have absolutely no idea. Uh, near, near my house, um, when we were able to go out for an hour a day, you'd see chalk patterns. Kids were chalking on the pavements or people were painting pictures of rainbows and putting them in trees. Or um, joggers were donning Spider-Man outfit and running around their neighborhoods so that anybody who was sheltering or couldn't go outside their house had something to look forward to or to smile at or whatever. And we were playing board games, video games, inventing games, all sorts of things, you know. And so suddenly, whether, whether or not we made an active choice for it, play came back into our lives as a fundamental means of navigating our existence. And I think what happens, especially in academic circles, is just as you sort of intimated, people either think play is for kids, play is for primary school, 
it's completely inappropriate and, and it's a waste of money uh, and student time to have it in, in formal education later on. You didn't say that, but it's one of the things that, that, that does come up time and again. But to me, you know, quite often people, if they think of play, they think of the opposite of work. They think of horsing around. They think of um, something to let off steam after after the proper stuff has been done. And so we've got some false binaries there and we've got some very narrow interpretations. You know, the play versus work is a false binary. Um, you know, serious stuff versus light relief is a false binary because you can, through different forms of play, as my most recent study shows, as the other books have shown, actually as anybody, you know, and there are so many networks these days around play in higher education, new books coming out, right? It's a really growth area. There are so many signs and inspirations that show you that you can be learning something really difficult while you're playing. You know, the two aren't kind of um, what's the word? Mutually exclusive. And so I think one of the problems, and I and actually, you know, I asked you the question, and I know if I think of play, I know, I know because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, I think of all sorts of things. But I, I often think that play for many people, it, it, it is, you know, it's running around, it's letting off steam, it's 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 physical play, it's team play, it's games, it's and it and there are so many different sides to play you know there's cerebral play there's quiet play there's internal play um solo play um thoughtful play you know that there are so many different ways of interpreting it and if you're minded to you can look at some of the theorists who've created typologies of play and I mentioned Brian Sutton Smith earlier on and now he's a sociologist and he's a he was an um, he was a psychologist as well and so he had and he has an a mind mind blowing theoretical grasp, but some of the things that he considers can, can, that can potentially be play that he includes in his typology, like hostessing and babysitting, would never even cross my radar as forms of play. But what that does do is it illustrates that actually, for some people who are immersed in the theory of play, all sorts of things might be play that we don't think of as play. The whole point of that, you don't have to travel with Sutton Smith and go, okay, right on, I'll believe that babysitting is play. I'm never going to go there, Christina. Too many, too many, too many evenings spent looking after other people's children in my teens did not convince me that that was play. But um, I think it's just trying to enable people to understand that play is deep, it's complex, it is not straightforward, it is personal, it's subjective, it's intellectual, it can be all sorts of things while also being fun, visceral, spontaneous, voluntary, joyful. You know, it, I think if we, once we start enabling people to see and, you, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that everybody has to have a PhD and play before they play. Of course not. That would be nonsense. But I think if we can enable people to see that actually there is so much more to play than an instant interpretation might suggest, especially in educational contexts, then I think we start to have different conversations and different perspectives on, on what play, on what play is. So I think that's that's one of the you know the, one of the first hurdles you hit is interpretation and if you have the time and the opportunity 
to start exploring what else is going on there. You start to open people up to um, to what what they might find possible and intriguing and interesting through play. And I think I'll, I'll just add one more thought there also, which is around the personal and subjective, you know, my way of playing, your way of playing, somebody else's way of playing may not be the same. You know, you might love karaoke. I hate karaoke. You might love pantomime. I would rather sit on my own head than have to sit through a pantomime. But people love these things. You know, people love theatrics and performing and so on and so forth. And for somebody else, that's not going to be it. In my latest study, some people will say, oh my God, I love competitive play. It's so great for students. They love being in teams and they love the winning and the losing and the leaderboards and the points and the trophies and and other people are going absolutely not that brings out the worst in my students I want them to play cooperatively so that actually it's a collective uh, success or achievement or outcome or experience or whatever it is so um, I can't even remember your question now Christina I think I've gone on many many tangents since you asked it but I hope somewhere in all of that there's something that that points that points to an answer. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I think it was a great answer. I feel like it's a good question if people can um, find something they're passionate to start talking about. The questions are meant more to inspire the guest than to um, get to a one right answer or um, something I'm particularly looking for. Um, What you were saying brought up so many thoughts for me. One was, um, which you were getting to towards the end, was some people do not know how to play which is um, a thing that's surprising for me and yet um, some hunting around on social media confirmed for me. Um, You were speaking about how babysitting was not your idea of fun or play because of how much of it you had done. And I funded a lot of my um, high school extracurricular fees and um, a lot of what my uh, graduate and, and college education didn't cover with my stipends and my scholarships and whatnot with babysitting and nanny work. And I found that even children sometimes don't really know how to be playful or to play because they want to know what the outcome's supposed to be. They want to know what you want from them. And um, 
that makes me curious about the Legos because I think of Legos as being something that are free play. You can make all sorts of things with them. And while some people do, do buy specific kits where they want it to look like a certain action figure or a certain complicated movie set when they're done with it, the actual box sets are really just sorts of lots of shapes in, in a box and you stick them together to make whatever. So how does the Lego creative play um, work for what it sounds like, making creative outcomes, creative play? Well, um, I think the first thing to say is um, you're absolutely right. You know, Leg Lego bricks can be used for free play or they can be used to build, in, you know, sets of things following instructions or whatever. You are speaking to somebody who completely loved Lego as a kid and never grew out of it. Um, but I went on that journey, you know, um, I, one of my, um, my, my first, my first Lego kits many decades ago was a Swiss chalet set. Now, now I notice it's sold on eBay as vintage Lego. Um, so, uh, that, that, that tells you something about the passage of time. Um, the thing about Lego is Lego, a bit like PowerPoint, a bit like a ball, a bit like a biro, a bit like paper. You know, it is it is a tool. Um, it's it's a resource. So the Lego in itself is neutral. It's what people decide to do with it. So there are so many different things that can be done with Lego. Um, so Lego education uh, have all sorts of resources around things that they do in schools. In Denmark, they have the um, Playful Labs, which I think are funded by the, the Lego group. Um, so you can, you know, a very simple technique would be a six brick, you know, a six brick technique. Um, I think there's a guide that you can download on the Internet. I can't remember where from where children are invited to do all sorts of tasks that only involve six bricks um, of Lego. So so that's both fun and imaginative and challenging because you've got a finite number of bricks um, in terms of Lego serious play. That's um, a very specific kind of methodology. So that I would say is is different to people who have got a bunch of Lego in their classroom and they're getting people to do things with them. And, and that's perfectly fine. I'm an absolute fan of, of getting people to do simple things with bunches of Lego um, uh, in their classroom. Lego Serious Play is a different kettle of fish. It is a series, if you like, of of um, activities or, or as they call them applications where you can start off uh, you bring a, a bunch of people together to think about a particular uh, issue or topic or need or whatever and then you take them through a series of activities that enable them uh, you know building and sharing activities that enable them to get used to building stuff enabling them to build a kind of more imaginative and, and um, uh, metaphorical approach to building so for example if I'm building my Swiss chalet I'm following instructions and I'm building a Swiss chalet that's going to look like a Swiss chalet and that's why I've built it to be a Swiss chalet if somebody's talking about um oh uh let me think um let's just imagine how, how to establish a sense of connection um uh in a diverse student group for example so there you've got something that's not straightforward. It could, could look like all sorts of things. You're talking about abstracts and hypotheses, and there could be multiple solutions, and there'll be all sorts of things about, well, it depends what your students like, where have they come from, how long are they together, rah, rah. 
Um, but but the beauty there of something like the Lego Serious Play methodology is that you take this topic, you introduce it, you explore it, but you can't build you know a sense of connection like can you you can build a dog or a swiss chalet or a a tree or a whatever you know it's an abstract concept so you're moving into the realms of creativity and imagination and interpretation to start evoking what people really think about this very important issue and so the lego bricks are the conduit to that really important conversation they create something visual that somebody creates and explains and shares with other people and they also create and share their interpretations in response to a number of prompts and so forth. So it's a very egalitarian um, uh, and non-hierarchical way of getting all the opinions in a room or in a group around something, all the ideas. Um, And so often when we explore issues if we do it in committee or if we do it in class, there will be that sense of hierarchy or dominance or or unequal labor or whatever. Whereas, you know, you've got the, the loud and confident students who always have their hands up. So it feels like only two, two or three in the room are speaking. Or you've got the students who are trying to second guess what they think the teacher wants. And so they're they're not actually sharing their ideas. They're, they're kind of conducting some kind of covert strategy. Whereas through this systematic set of, of techniques and builds, which all of them incrementally lead to a deepening of the understanding and the exploration of, of thoughts on the issue, which can, if, if taken to its sort of final conclusion, can result in this massive Lego-based landscape of people's thoughts around a particular uh, topic. So it's it's an excellent methodology for really bringing bringing everybody into a conversation, visualizing it in a way that is very memorable. But also it's it's something that people have to invest in, because if you were to walk in after a day of somebody else having been exploring this topic, it's not like walking in and seeing a diagram or reading a two page paper, you know, you, you you don't you don't automatically know what's been going on just by looking at what people have have built. So in terms of engagement and involvement, it's very powerful and it's very important. Um, so I've been involved in a lot of uh, facilitator training and have co-designed um, a facilitator training course now online specifically for higher education to enable us to use this as a methodology more. So just to il- illustrate a couple of things from my own practice, one of the things I did very early on um, with with a, when I got interested in, in using Lego or Lego Serious Play in the higher education classroom goes back to the interest I mentioned before about critical reflection. And one of my colleagues said to me that he really wanted to run a module around personal development planning and critical reflection, but he didn't, he didn't want it to be the sort of traditional, this is how you write a reflective summary um, kind of lecture. He said, could you do something with Lego? So I said, yes. And so I took um, the principles of the Lego serious play methodology and created um, uh, a workshop for students where they did a three-hour hands-on Lego serious play workshop with me, exploring their personal journeys. All of them were international students who'd spent a year in the UK, and this was at the end of that year before they went on and started a degree course. Thinking about yeah, that, the evolution of that year. What did they experience? What did they learn? What did they come through? What what kind of um, 
epistemological certainties had come crashing down to to paraphrase Stephen Brookfield um you know what 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 had they learned about themselves how had they grown what challenges had they faced and actually we found it was an incredible way of getting students to engage with that process of critical reflection that a lot of them had been completely unmotivated to engage in when it was the question of the here, you know, do your do do your your artwork, which in their minds was the real work, and then write five hundred words about what you got out of it. You know, to 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 students that was just completely pointless. And what we also did with that was we um, we kind of brought in a different reflective mechanism. So obviously they were reflecting as they built um, their models and discussed them and built for each other as well to show that they'd listened to each other's stories. But we also inflated a big kind of pod-like beehive thing in in the art studio and inside it it was it was basically if you can imagine an old-fashioned beehive which is basically like a huge great big tea cozy or a sort of tent um and within this big puffy pod we put uh, a stand and a, 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 a MacBook with um, uh, video software and stuck some prompts to the inside of the pod. And the students went in and they picked the prompts and then they reflected in a little video talking to themselves about what they just experienced that morning and how it had made them feel and how it had helped them or, or what effect it had had on, on enabling them to think back over their year. And they created these extraordinarily little videos. They all took their videos away. They were personal to them, but I, I retained a copy uh, on the MacBook. And then they um, did actually write um, a reflective piece for their tutors. And their tutors were astounded at the difference in quality between what they'd written if they'd just been told to write a 500-word reflection and what they wrote having experienced the play-based exploration of their experiences followed by the pod and then did the reflective uh, experience and and I ended up training up lots of other tutors uh, to use to use my my workshop model um, it ran for years lots of other courses uh, asked me then to to go in and use Lego serious play or a version thereof or principles from it um, in my teaching with them so that's that's how that went again that's a rather long and rambly start of an answer. Um, if people are interested and haven't used Lego um, uh, in, in their university classrooms at all, you'll find lots of people have written about using Lego in one way or another. Um, certainly somebody like um, um, David Gauntlet, who has written countless books on creativity, and he's a creativity chair at Ryerson in Canada. Um, he did a lot of work with... Um, the Lego group, a lot of research into Lego serious play. In 2010, he, he wrote for them um, uh, a guide to Lego serious play as, um, as an open source model, and you can find that online. Um, also, Chrissy Narancy and I, Chrissy, who I mentioned earlier, um, we've both produced an open source 
booklet called Lego for University Learning, which is freely downloadable from Zenodo online. And we did one issue in 2019. And then we just brought out late last year, a revised edition of that called Lego for University Learning Online, Offline and Elsewhere. And in it, we provide both an introduction to the Lego series play model, but we also include case studies from lots of different people who've used Lego in very, very different contexts. Um, and some of that is Lego series play, some of that's just Lego, some of that's Lego Plus, where they've incorporated Lego and maybe another method or approach or philosophy or material. Um, so there is loads of stuff out there to uh, give people some idea on how to use uh, Lego uh, in university learning in a way that is commensurate with the, the level of a university experience. You know, it's all about unlocking ideas. And in my own study, The Value of Play in Higher Education, which, again, freely uh, downloadable from my website, engagingimagination.com, um, there are loads and loads. There's a gallery of about 300 examples of, of play types in higher education, including lots of ideas around Lego. So there's a vast amount of stuff there that people are using and can use to, to be part of the repertoire of, you know, what I think of as proper, legitimate academic pedagogy in universities. You know, it's not what you do when you finish the work. It's what you do so you can do the work. And for listeners, um, Dr. James has been very generous about listing a number of scholars and resources and um, things you can find to further your inquiry into um, creative play, engaging imagination, and helping students become reflective thinkers in the classroom. And we will be linking all of that in the show notes. So please don't worry, you'll be able to find those um, references. Um, there's so much benefit to uh, this method of teaching. And one thing that students really need to be practical about because of the high cost of tuition and spending four or five or six years getting degrees where they're not spending their time full-time working is the concern of what will I do when I graduate? What will I do with this? How will I explain to an employer what it was that I was learning? And you cover some of that in um, the book Engaging Imagination that by doing creative and reflecting thinking projects in universities, students then go into the workforce able to contribute to innovation. They're able to learn more clearly. They're able to understand their own potential. They're able to generate new questions, explore new questions. This kind of teaching actually makes people better thinkers. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think one of the things... There's been a real shift in the zeitgeist over, over well, certainly the last decade, if not longer. And I think with the advent of new technologies, with having to work remotely with all sorts of things, you know, when, when universities around the world suddenly had to start teaching remotely because they had to shut their campuses almost overnight because of the pandemic, although I would say that what I'm about to say has, has its roots in time before COVID, um, very briefly, I think some people made the mistake of thinking, 
Well, as long as we can shove loads of content, loads of material, loads of downloadable documents online, our students will be okay. And of course, these days in the information age, there there is access to information is not the problem. Knowing how to navigate that information discerningly, critically, um, work out whether it's good information, bad information, what's missing from the information is is something else. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, people much vaunted the flipped classroom when it came along. This notion that actually you use time better if students are doing the sort of the static uh, monologic stuff like reading stuff or whatever watching recorded lectures or whatever outside the classroom then inside the classroom they come in and they tackle they tackle some of the issues so one of the things I thought was really interesting one of my um, participants in the study I recently conducted uh, was working is working in a very prestigious university and she said the problem is that their students are incredibly high achieving you know a student plus um, never failed anything in their lives, but they come to university and they want the recipe, they want the formula. And people in other kinds of institutions have said the same. Students think if they are getting value for money, they are going to, they will leave. They will leave universities oven ready, if you like, oven ready chickens. They've got all the knowledge, all the everything. And of course, that's that's not what we need. We 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 live in a world. Um, people talk about you know VUCA. What is it? Volatile, uncertain. I can't remember what the CNA stand for, but you you know the, the, it's 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 that notion that we are in a fast moving, unstable world where actually we need people who can be flexible and adaptable. Yes, they've got knowledge, skills and experience and understanding. Of course, you know, we expect them to have certain competencies. I don't want somebody to operate on me if they don't have proper medical expertise. Um, You know, I don't want anybody taking out my teeth if they've never held a a dental drill um, or build a house for me if they have no idea how bricks and mortar stick together. So, of course, we need the knowledge base, but there is so much more. You know, we need problem solvers. We need creative thinkers and intuitives. We need people who can change horses in midstream. Um, and I think that is where play is good because play enables people to work with incomplete information. If you look, or, or information where the um, where where the the rules or or the the basis for the game change. If you take a game like Pandemic, which is, it was invented pre-COVID, listeners may be familiar with it or not, which is really, it's a a cooperative game whereby people are trying to suppress the outbreak of, uh, um, you know, contagious illnesses around the globe. But with each round you play and you work, you work as a, as a, as a collective to try and suppress the outbreak. But with each turn, depending on, you know, the, 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 the dice you roll, the cards you pick, the whatever, the whatever, the situation changes every turn. So you might have had a strategy that led you to concentrate all your resources in one area of the globe. And then suddenly by the next round, all the information has shifted and you're being taken somewhere else. And that is what that is what life is like these days. And so uh, playing games of chance, playing 
playing where it is a matter of discovery or it's unpredictable. You don't know what your opponent is doing. You know, one of my other participants said that one of the really important things about game-based learning is that it's not it's not about you devising your strategy to win. It's you understanding how your opponent makes decisions and what your opponent is going to do. So it's a whole different set of mental skills. And then I think also, you know, other people will say play builds empathy, play builds understanding, um, play enables people to understand different ways of seeing the world. These are all things that we desperately need at this time. Um, some of some of those uh, some of the forms of play are actually about enabling students to grasp certain threshold concepts or key principles. You know, we all find when we are studying uh, a subject at university, whether it's undergrad, postgrad, whatever, we all hit a wall at some time. We all hit the thing which is, you know, everything else was a doddle, but there is this one thing that we're struggling with. And, you know, I've had... Uh, one of my um, colleagues who contributed to the study, who was working in medical education, um, was trying to teach certain kinds of lab skills. And she was trying to teach the skill of micro pipetting, where you have to take extremely precise uh, measurements of solution uh, in order to be able to um, uh, use them for a, an appropriate purpose. And she said it was one of the hardest and driest subjects to teach and really good academic students. Some of them would falter with it um, because they just couldn't find, they just couldn't get their heads around it. And she, she created a lovely example, which she called micro pipetting a la diehard. Well, I think I probably called a la diehard, but she took, there is a, a water jug riddle in, in the movie Die Hard with a Vengeance, whereby they, they, they um, Bruce Willis, and co have to stop a bomb going off by working out some kind of proportion uh, of water that they have to pour with water jugs. I'm, I'm probably massacring the movie, so apologies to any fans who are listening. Um, but she took that analogy and she built an activity around it, which enabled people to grasp that actually micropetting wasn't, wasn't a sloppy exercise. It was super precise and after one course when she'd run this two students came up and and they thanked her for actually saving their academic careers because they said you knew and these are bright girls but they said you know we just couldn't get it and we were losing our confidence we were losing hope we were ready to quit we were ready to walk away from our studies because we thought we'll never ever get this so I think that again it's a rambly answer but I think you know, play play used appropriately, used judiciously, um, used with forethought is a means of not only enabling people to do well in their academic studies while they're at university, but it also enables the fostering of all kinds of skills, intellectual skills, interpersonal skills, um, thinking skills, decision-making skills that they're going to need when they go out into this fast-paced, chaotic world. And I don't know why I'm saying go out in the fast-paced, chaotic world. They're already in it. You know, students don't have straightforward lives, neither do staff. So we're already in this chaotic, fragile, unstable situation. And, and none of us just learn the recipes that we can trot out to deal with any given situation you know life's not like that and that's something that play is is very valuable for
as I was listening, I was writing down some words that came to mind and one was control, another was handling frustrations, another was handling failure. Um, students from a very young age are told that there's a recipe to success. They come to college or university asking for it because they were given that from elementary school onward. In the States, we've taken manipulables out of the kindergarten level and, and started having spelling tests. And I'm thinking of a very specific school system um, that is doing that. Um, and I've heard from other uh, people that that is going on in their area as well. And so by the time these students are reaching higher ed, they have a lived expectation that this is what they're supposed to do. And it makes it difficult for people to reconcile the two truths that, yes, we are going to need you to do a certain amount of work in order to pass you in this class. But this idea that if you have a specific recipe, you can have control over your life, you can have control over your career, you can have control over all kinds of things really leads to disillusionment and a word that we're hearing a lot, which is burnout. How does um, reintroducing play or protecting play, maybe it's always been there, as you said, so many people were quietly uh, having play as part of their uh, pedagogy, as part of their uh, rubric, but they didn't want to overemphasize it because it seemed to be the opposite of rigor and intent of purpose. Um, how does protecting the importance of play help protect against burnout and also help students understand that this recipe that they were told existed, they can let go of that sense that control is what's going to save them. Well, I think, you know, again, Brian Sutton-Smith, um, in he, he, um, uh, the, the, the sort of custodians, if you like, of his legacy at the Strong Library brought out a book after he died called, which was, it was his work and his title, uh, but they sort of published it on his behalf. And, and he, he, he called it Play for Life, Play as Emotional Survival. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier on about survival, but I think, you know, that is where play is crucial for burnout. You know, we, 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 you know, I, I, there's, there's that, I don't know if you have it in the States, but there's that really irritating phrase, which is, you know, what is it? Don't work harder, work smarter, which is one of those sort of rather smart. Oh, it is irritating. Yeah, it's so irritating. <laughs> it's one of those terribly smug things, which just kind of, and you kind of go, oh yeah, job done. Well, now you've said that to me, all my problems are solved. Um, but we all get into situations where the only solution that we can find is to try and work harder. You know, the days get longer. We we get up earlier to fit in, you know, whatever it is to make sure that we do. We just think that if we can do more, then, then it will all be all right. And actually what tends to happen is we do get completely exhausted and therefore the harder we work, actually the further away we get from our goal because because we haven't got the we haven't got the energy we haven't got the brain space we we are we are we're tired out we're washed up we're just you know we've had it um so i think the importance of play is and um pat kane who wrote a fantastic book called the play ethic brought it out in 2004 um and that's a real kind of social manifesto if you like and and kane argues that um you know, 
a lot of the Western world subscribes to uh, the work ethic, you know, that, that, that work is how you define your value in society. And he's, he's sort of arguing for a play ethic, which is not that we all just, you know, throw everything up in the air and muck about a lot. Um, but I think it's about having a different kind of value system. But he, he quotes Friedrich von Schiller, who describes play as taking reality lightly. And I love that phrase because you think about people who are doing really serious, dangerous jobs. I include teachers in that. You know, we do take reality lightly. When we're, when we're, we're, when we're stressed, we're tired, we're frustrated, whatever, it'll be the water cooler moment. It'll be the, the, the banter with our teammates, um, you know, firefighters, medics, surgeons, soldiers, pilots. They, they all have their dark humour, which is their way of navigating stress. So we use play um, in, in ways to try and kind of short circuit that that increase in 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 cortisol and in tension and in frustration and in the way that we're no longer able to to kind of see how wound up we've got you know um i i used to joke with my my daughter i used to say you know the moment i i thought that everybody was annoying me i knew that the problem must be me because i would have got so so sort of tense and wound up that i was no longer able to check in with myself to see how how stressed I was, if you like, you know, because I was the common denominator. So I think I think play is incredibly important for um, for just acting as that short circuit. You talked about you know safe spaces to embrace failure, to try things out. You know, play allows you to do all of that. I think it, you know, one of the things that we do. And, and I obviously I don't speak for every single educational culture in the world, but I I'm I'm going to suggest that it, it's not a million miles to a, away from believing it might be the case. You know, many of our edu- formal educational cultures make us take the position that we're in, whether we're at school, whether we're in primary school, whether at uni. You know, it feels like your whole life stands or falls at this moment with the tests you do at school, with your reading average years, what levels you've achieved, all those sorts of metrics. And at each stage of measurement or assessment in your educational career growing up, you just feel like, oh my God, it's game over if I haven't got this. And actually play as a means of just helping you stand back from that lack of perspective. And and I think that's incredibly important. Just to give you an illustration, when I was at the University of Winchester for three years in a row, uh, I and a number of colleagues co-convened something we called a Play and Creativity Festival. And we spent a week each year um, putting on a series of uh, playful learning um, activities, creative and imaginative activities. We invited people to share their playful practices or or their kind of play-related practices. So we had, you know, historians teaching things with board games. We had uh, artists teaching reflection through uh, origami. We had a psychology professor looking at the relationship between walking and creativity. We had uh, a drama teacher um, uh, teaching 18th century hand gestures. You know, we had um, in a darkened fault, we had um, a psychoanalysis of, of horror stories. We had 
all sorts of things. Um, and lots and lots, you know, there were there was Lego, there were games, there was collage, there were jigsaw puzzles, there were all sorts of things. And for this one week, uh, for three years in a row, we put this, we put this on. And we put it on in the last taught week of the second semester. So basically the week when all academic pressures were coming to a head. People were handing in their final assignments. It couldn't have been more stressful. And we did think, we couldn't find any other time to do it, but we kept thinking, are we mad? Is this the worst possible time in the academic year to do it? And I think it will have, certainly some people will have opted with their feet and thought, you're kidding me, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, it was all voluntary. People could go to as much or as little as they wanted to. Um, but we found that the people who turned up said, you know, I didn't know how much I needed this. I just stepped into the play tent or I attended so-and-so's session for half an hour or I made us something or, a, you know, engaged in whatever. And, and they, they, just, they just found a sense of calm and a step away from stress that enabled them to reappraise things. Plus, they learned something. They learned something about their colleagues' subjects, or they learned something about a little creative pursuit, or they found they could do something they didn't know they could do. And one of the, the, the sort of the quotes that has stuck in my mind ever since the first one we did was somebody came to me and said, You know, I didn't get it. Before you put this on, I didn't get it. I thought it was a terrible idea, but he said, I get it now. And I've had conversations with people I never talk to about things we never talk about. And I just thought, well, job done. That's that to me. That's that's why we do this. You know, it's about seeing that there are other ways. And we learn so much about our colleagues and our students when we engage in a form of play, we don't have to chase them around the campus or, you know, go abseiling or climb trees or, or you know, play Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, unless, of course, you want to. That's entirely up to you. Um, but it's, you find out somebody else, like, oh, gosh, uh, Lord, I can't remember. I can't remember who said this, which is terrible. I think it was Plato. Um, what was it? You learn more about somebody... Um, in an hour of play than you, than you do in a year of conversation. And I think certainly that's been my experience working with people I've known for a number of years. If I'm running a Lego serious play workshop, you think, oh, you know, here comes Bob, here comes Brenda, uh, not their real names. Um, and then suddenly they build and they share things and you're blown out of the water because you think, I never knew that was inside them. Uh, and maybe they didn't either. So yeah, so many, so many reasons to play. We're running out of time. So my final question is, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I really hope um, if you've listened to this and there's anything in there that has caught, caught you in some way, you know, hopefully it's caught you in a oh, I didn't know that I'd like to find out more way. It might have caught you in a really, I'm not sure about that kind of way, but I really hope that it will stimulate you to go and check that thing out further. And if you are interested in finding out more about play, you've got a world, world of information at your disposal. And also the wonderful thing about play in higher education is that there's a huge 
and emerging body of literature coming up, lots of books and journals and things um, and events and conferences and play networks that are now available that we can freely join in uh, with and see you know, where our place might be, what we might learn from them, what it does for us. Um, so I, I hope I hope it's encouraged you to put your toe in the water. Perhaps also, I hope it's encouraged you to think about your own relationship with play. You know, what, what does play mean to you? And there's no right or wrong answer. What, what play do you like best? What happens to you? What does it feel like when you play? What does it feel like when you can't play? Because, of course, one of the things that um, all the play theoreticians say and we know is that human beings can't play if they're tired, sick or stressed. And so if you feel you've lost your ability to play, maybe reflect on why that might be. Thank you so much for being here today, Professor Allison James, and sharing with us ways to help higher education students become creative and reflective thinkers. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.